This is a Moraine Valley Community College Library event podcast. For more information, visit www.morainevalley.edu slash library. Good morning, ladies and gentlemen. So uh, we'll get started. My name is Troy. I'm one of the librarians. This is our celebration of National Poetry Month, which we're celebrating all month right now today. So yay, poetry. Uh, This is something I've actually wanted to do for a while. Um, It's cool. Uh, Sandra... We've had discussions about her poetry. She's read for one of our other podcasts. We've never really had her in the library doing her stuff, so this is um, awesome. Um, For those of you that don't know, Sandra Beauchamp teaches in our Lit and Com department. Uh, Her poem, The Digging, won the William Stafford Award for Poetry, which is uh, cool. She has a master's from Eastern and um, is a good friend of many of us and one of our favorite colleagues. So uh, if you would, give her a round of applause. Welcome, Sandra. Thank you. Thank you, everyone, uh, for coming and um, giving me the opportunity to share some of my work with you. Can you all hear me okay? In the back there, is that all right? Shaking your head like this means, yeah, we can hear you. Yeah, okay, great, thank you. Um, I'm going to start out reading one of my poems, The Digging. It's the one that Troy referenced. Um, The reason why I'm going to start with this is not because it won the William Stafford Award, but because of the title. It's kind of a metaphor for my process of writing poetry in general, the digging. That's what it is. It's kind of digging through the superficial surface of seemingly meaningless things and finding um, meaning in them. So this is the digging. That summer, my mother was brown bottle sick, cursing the swelter, cursing the sweat, chasing her morning blues with beef eaters booze and shiny yellow keep me asleep. Her lover silenced my mouth with fear of her death, sudden at hearing confession of his midnight trips to my room. How loud, dear God, his shadow moved. Fingers slipping under blue raggedy and covers, prying and digging, like me in daylight spent in a gravel bed built to house a 78 Vega, rooting toes, little pigs into mounds of pink pebbles, lingering over those dusty stones, a six-year-old hunting for a diamond precious enough, stronger than the glass knobs on any door, to buy that shadow away, away from mother and me, digging until sometimes I bled, digging a grave to hover in, surrounded by iron-wet earth, an underground shed far from any lover, clawing into dirt, fingers left red, fingers rubbed raw, Digging until finally darkness would call, leaving all diamond hopes dashed, and into the falling long of shadows, calling me, even now, still back. Um, Now, while that uh, particular poem seemingly is dark, it is often through darkness that we discover light, and hopefully... you know, the, the subject matter is dark, but I hope that some of you hear the hope that beats in the heart of the speaker, the persona. Uh, The next poem that I'm going to read, hang on, I have a visual. Lovely creature, isn't it? This is a cicada. And cicada has a very interesting life cycle. Some of them have 13 and 17 year life cycles. Most of their lives as nymphs are spent underground. 
uh, and they spend most of their lives trying to claw their way out. And you can see that they're easily equipped with that, with their uh, talons and mandibles that they use for shovels. Um, but once they reach the surface, um, they have only a few days to live, find a mate, and then they die. Um, and often their song goes unheard. When we hear the sound of the cicadas emerge every year, we hear the male song, but not the female song. So this particular poem acts as a metaphor for many of my other poems about female experiences. Um, and this poem was published in the Spoon River Poetry Review um, about a year ago. Cicada. I know how the cicada feels, tunneling her way through earth, her struggle in this dirt world to stay safe from skunks and squirrels, the prying beaks of birds. Safe until that season comes calling, the time that calls us all to surface, fueled with greater hungers, when the skin begins to crack and itch, when instinct cells tell us what to do next. Upward she strikes, swims for air, and with each inched stroke she forks in her hooks, each claw working past another layer. Sturdy weed roots through worms and clay she emerges from an old crust, slaking that need to make herself new, shirks off her dry summer cloak and leaves her carapace clinging to the low skirt of an oak and hobbles off into the night, forgetting, stinging beneath her new skin winks away with glassy wings, her hungry song never heard, as summer's end closes in to eat her, and all her life has been worth. Um, the next poem that I'm going to read is called Wallflower, and it's uh, not one that I've read before because I'm still working on it. In fact, I work on my poems sometimes for years at a stretch before I'm satisfied with them. And in fact, even last night I was talking to Erica um, about the fact that I was still making marks and replacements in some of my lines. That's how my process evolves. Um, but this particular poem came to me after reading story after story about young people who were being bullied. And as a consequence of that bullying, many times they were taking their lives or they're doing dangerous things with their lives. And I wondered, you know, we hear that saying, children can be so cruel sometimes. That seems almost like too easy of an answer. Do we really believe that children are born with the, you know, innate ability to bully? Or do they learn it somewhere? Does it disappear when we become adults? Or does it just take another form? Maybe more silent? and maybe more invasive. So this poem tries to address that issue. Wallflower. Fists anchored into armpits, she eyes that tile floor with fire as the toothy gym teacher starts the Virginia reel. Under sleeved giggles, a snot-laced boy shuffles over, pretends to retch, and she wants to shrink small as a pinpoint float invisible through the air, or for just one second trade her soul for the dimpled blonde, the tomboy with green knees, even the brain with metal teeth. But she pinches the boy's sleeves, pushes her concrete feet to the music between giggling children in her head, echoing the big girl, the ugly girl, the poor girl with no money for shoes or soap. Now you see her at the Super K, around the potatoes and cabbage, 
digging out diapers in aisle nine, five children swarming her legs. For a beat, among the carnations, her face disappears, a hopeful question mark, before she bumps into your cart and you curse her silently under your breath. <clears throat> to lighten the mood a little bit, uh, my next poem is actually based on um, a woman that I knew in my childhood, Sophie Frakes. But to me, when I was little, you never called adults by their first name, and I couldn't quite manage her last name. So to me, she became neighbor lady. Uh, and that's what I, I, how I referred to her until I was about 13 or 14 years old. She was just neighbor lady. Um, she was quite different, a different kind of woman uh, that lived on our block, and she taught me quite a lot. So while a lot of my poems are not personal in nature or persona poems, this one uh, hits pretty close to the mark. Neighbor lady. On our block, my neighbor lady was different from other mothers. Her flower beds blossomed dandelions, pill bugs, and Indian beads. Feral cats swarmed her sun-warmed bowls of cream. Polyester cutoffs revealed thick calves and hairy shins. Dollar bill flip-flops exposed chipped toenails, calluses, and corns. Floating in a bell-shaped dress, my mother squealed at spiders lacing the porch swing beam. Mrs. Frakes sipped Kool-Aid cocktails from plastic beer steins, blew cigarette smoke across her backyard fence to my mother, beating an area rug to death over the clothesline. That woman never used perfume or makeup, went off to grocery with a plastic sunbonnet knotted around her salty hair. My mother took two hours to prepare for public, emerging from our house within a gauze of baby powder and aquanet. To this day, I question the chemicals, the residue, how it bound to her skin and brain, making her somehow dearly insane. Mornings, while my mother bleached her upper lip, I spied on neighbor lady from my swing set, squinted at her mannish walk through a different landscape, my mind abuzz. And some nights I heard her purr for the invisible husband, the vocal hungers wafting through the August air. Through the screened windows of my bedroom, her voice murmuring some dark, swift wisdom of what it could mean to become a woman. This next poem uh, is entitled Heart's End. I don't think I'm keeping up with the... Uh... Okay, this next poem um, actually comes from an experience I had when I was 13 years old. And four of my best friends, all of them were boys, died in a horrible car accident. I was supposed to be in that car, uh, but I was not. 
And so in this poem, I kind of try and talk about um, all of them as one and um, about trying to work through that and how sometimes we come to grips with our own mortality uh, in the, the strangest ways. Heart's End. The back door smacks as I stumble from another cocktail party. Too tired from fending off gin-savvy winks, sailed by men old enough to know better. I blow smoke, lingering over their heads like wet, milky cobwebs. Let them know my heart was inked and erased a long time ago. Sliding through damp yard, I feel granite settle in my limbs, hear my friends' voices, float into murmurs which lift up through the dark. Watching the watery sky, I see clouds melt like arms circling a watch and feel the wet blades lick my back, reminding me of that boy's sudden lips, catching mine under a sky like this. The plumness of those two soft birds soaring against my shut mouth, the way he kept both eyes open for my first kiss than the flash disappointment when I did not push back. Dead two years later, seduced by cancer, he was cloaked up in a wood box, doused and set to flame, his ashes left for his mother's mantle. Were he still alive now, I would take his face with older hands, crush passion into him with parted lips, open eyes, and push into his mouth my heart with one frantic breath an answer to his question about woman, love, and death. Yet knowing all this, I exist, blindly aware of sudden movements in this life which scream we are constantly dying, slapped to tick and stop like a cheaply oiled timepiece. Thea. Next poem I'm going to read is Typhoid Mary. How many of you have heard of Typhoid Mary? Right? Some of you have heard of Typhoid Mary. Okay, well, around the beginning of the 20th century, about 1900, there was a typhoid outbreak. And it wouldn't seem so strange to authorities except for the people that were falling victim were uh, upper class um, people who were living in New York. And so authorities were trying to track down where the source of this typhoid was coming from that was you know, um, permeating these upper-class homes. And they had narrowed it down to a carrier, and her name was Mary Mallon. Um, and Mary Mallon was an Irish immigrant who was an excellent cook. Um, and she was able to sustain herself and remain independent um, by getting jobs in these wealthy homes. She was tracked down as a carrier. She herself didn't exhibit any of the symptoms herself. She was a carrier. And for five years, they apprehended her in 1910 in a very violent way. Apprehended her for five years, and then in 1915, they released her on the condition that she would only find work doing laundry. And she was secured a job doing that. However, she felt her home was in the kitchen. So against orders and breaking the law, she went back under aliases in order to begin cooking again. So for some people, they look at this and they say, well, she's blatantly, you know, this is maybe, you know, manslaughter or second-degree murder or something like that because she knowingly went about this. But she herself didn't believe that she was the cause of the typhoid outbreak. And she wanted to remain independent, something she was not able to do um, by doing laundry for people. 
So this is the story of Mary Mallon, also known as Typhoid Mary. And you'll see this is actually um, a picture, a a reproduction of what was appearing in newspapers around the country at this time. She was identified and vilified also, I have to add. There was one particular doctor, his name was Dr. Charles Soper, um, who seemed um, not only to be disgusted with Mary, um, not because she was a typhoid carrier, but because he said this, and this is a quote that's an epigram of the poem. Quote, Mary walked more like a man than woman, and her mind had a distinctly masculine character also. Typhoid Mary. <clears throat> this blustery Irish woman, gripping hard knots of potatoes and scalded fists, scaled their skins into trash bins. Her home was with sharp knives, loaves of bread, bricks of bloody beef, cabbage, onions, tins, and huge pots. Their handles suffered from her firm grip over roiling burners. She never saw men starched in white jackets lurch behind her, grope her like a wine barrel. She was no dainty, Irish Rose, and whisk her off her feet. She peppered these men with blue curses, lipped over a thick accent, bit one's knuckle nearly off, gouged the other's eye, scratched a nurse's milky breast, tossed pins from her candied hair. Carted away like a wheelbarrow of turnips, she wailed monsters from North Brother Island, watched the sea lap the shore, thought the same water she sailed to promised freedom, now a liquid quarantine. She died there, never believing she baked death into bread, that she cracked skulls into skillets, and alone deserved a prison instead of a kitchen for a home. Just a few pictures. Uh, this next one is entitled Magnets. You watch the sky like my father, who would sit on the cool concrete stoop in summer and scout for stars at midnight or tails of jet cloud in the blue washed day. Camel between his lips, Schlitz can sweating beads over his hoofed hands, he tilted his head always skyward counting the blinks from airplanes soaring almost within reach. Amateur, astronomer, he'd lasso the stars and ooh and awe that they just might fall into the sacred mint green of our front lawn. Grabbing my hand, fierce and hard as teeth, he winced me at his grip, hissing, there, right there. You, drinking whiskey glass after glass, Grab my hand like he did, harder sometimes, when you think you spy some featherless bird or shiny celestial thing, so that I too might see those vamps that capture your glances, your awe, your thoughts on God, unfilled dreams, or maybe wishes to be free from magnets, magnets like me. Um, so as Robert Frost once said, you're not really a poet unless you have a father poem. Uh, so this is another one of, of those. 
called The Fall. And it's, it's entitled The Fall for several reasons. It alludes to the season of harvest, but it also alludes to sometimes falling from a high place, and not just literally, but sometimes figuratively. The Fall. My father loved apple picking. Before his legs bowed under the weight of middle age and too many beers palsied his grip. Dutiful daughter, I'd spend those autumns in old branch arms, clasping them between my knees with a gawky balance. I remember those plump apples well, hard roses begging for a bite with my milk teeth, filling my fingers with their waxy skin. They lined the baskets like heads, while I clung to limbs, avoiding the frost-hard ground swirling below me. I swear I tried for every fruit, scared of falling, failing in front of my father, trying to be the boy I thought he wanted. But those ovaries of trees, seeming so hard and stony, would tumble and split in the grass at his tapping boot. It sounded just like the baseballs, missing my outstretched mitt, or the dull slug of my BB gun connecting with the barn instead of his tin can target. Even now, I watch his water blue eyes roll when my car breaks down in a cloud of smoke and phrases like, toughen up for God's sake, squeeze between his lips and tipped beer can. And though my father never touched me, never even feigned loosening his belt in front of me, whenever I visit that orchard year after year, I listen for those fragile buds, hear them fall to earth with the thud of a fist, pummeling fleshy skin. So some of those poems are kind of completed. I'm somewhat happy with where they are. Many of them I'm not. So here come some of them that I'm just still working on, not happy with. So, you know. This is what it's like to do it in process. Sometimes I spend, as I said, years on poems, um, changing things, sometimes only just one line, one word, not quite happy with the sound or the rhythm that comes out of it, or even the connotation that uh, comes with the, the line itself. Um, this one is one of those where I'm constantly playing with it. Um, but I'll share it with you, and then maybe when we have time at the end for questions, we can talk about things that I want to change in this particular one. Um, but recipe box, it comes from, I teach, a, I, I did teach uh, an online poetry class, and one of the exercises for my students was to just open up a cabinet, open up a drawer, see if there's anything there that you often overlook that maybe has some significance. And so because I asked them to do it, I did it myself, and lo and behold, I opened up my cabinet, and there in the very back was a rusting recipe box. You guys have seen them, the old metal ones, right? Yeah, they probably sell them on Pawn Stars or something now for who knows what. But, uh, and I opened it, and there I saw uh, these little cards, and they had flour on them and stains from chocolate or whatever, and it just took me back. This was my mother's recipe box. Um, and just all the, the recipes that were passed down to her uh, from her grandmother and her great-grandmother just really interested me that this little thing, this little container, uh, could have so much history in it. So here's the result of that. The recipe box. 
Beyond the cumin, sesame, dried parsley, and cinnamon, behind my powdered sugar, cocoa, nutmeg, pasta bows, and Crisco, Grandma's recipe box sits, rusting, rarely opened, a wedding gift to you 50 years ago. Newlywed dinners for two, marriage meals, family feasts, nifty, thrifty potluck plans for Aunt Nancy's Waldorf salad, lazy day lasagna, fried pancakes, apple brown Betty, champagne punch, deviled eggs, a la Sue. The careful cards reveal in cursive steps your fingerprints, gravied swirls, clues to your new life as a young wife. Still, I smell those dark mornings you awoke too soon to cook and stew over a roasting stove for cargoes of in-laws and friends parking grill to bumper along the lane, lice possible cousins tracking mud and snow through the kitchen you scrubbed two weeks before. Through it all, your face bloomed apples, your anger basted slowly with a shyness I would never know, and a desire to make everyone, including me, joyous with meat and potatoes, miracle-whipped salads. That last Christmas, I remember watching the meal move around your plate, the peas navigated under the dressing, blonde turkey divan fanning the plate like strands of fine white hair. So small were your bites, your martyred hunger of a meatless life was a plate left full. Thanksgiving, he hovers now over me, clucking checking my breadcrumbs, the pans I used to roast the damn bird. She did not do it like this. She used that pan. She did not use rosemary under the skin. She did not do it like that, not at all. Not like her, at all. There is no way to recreate your stage-gouged stuffing, your dry pumpkin pie, your humble tangled turkey, your bland holiday yams. Yet, I ponder the recipes you left for me, teaspoon out emotions and cup out all the calls to you I should have made, just the way you would have done. But I realize that I have a cupboard of spices and not a thing to use them on. Okay, so what better to follow up the recipe box than with this poem? Uh, night shift nurse at the eating disorders clinic. Uh, my poems come from a lot of places. This particular one came to me after I watched an HBO documentary called Thin. And in that documentary, I saw these beautiful young women um, who were slowly killing themselves because of a desire whether to, to be thin or a fear of what would happen if they weren't thin. And Right next to them were these healthy women, these nurses, whose charge it was, whose responsibility it was to keep these women alive. And both of them couldn't understand each other. They, these were two sets of people that were constantly at odds. And so I wanted to explore that a little bit. And this is Night Shift Nurse at the Eating Disorders Clinic. To these disappearing girls, I must seem an elephant, a clumsy oafish wall of flesh, a fat bologna sandwich, waddling around with a Twinkie in my pocket, fudge sickle, giggling from my glove box. 
rather average, I toe the line at 165, by four and a half. Compare that to their eager morning bones, stretching before sunrise against the blue skin of their papery prisons. They eat cigarettes and pain, paint their futures in size zero. They are never good enough, never model beautiful or wonderful enough to eat that pasta primavera, a hot fudge sundae. That salmon almondine is always a sin or sitting vomit at the back of the throat. They don't know how a lover's fingers can dig and cling to ample hips, how the eye eats on a dimpled thigh or clings to round belly. They do not know yet how hunger haunts children before school in the city, how our sister, refugee, will starve so her babies grow bones and teeth. Instead, they sneer at me, the enemy, as I chart their ounces at 5.30 every morning, their nail beds coffin blue, hands just frost, hair limp, yet eyes alive and eyes cursing still. Outside, at lunch, I sweat over a cheeseburger in July's free sun and wish for them this hunger. Uh, this next poem is entitled After. Um, the reason why I use this title, I think, is sometimes we wonder, well, what happens after a relationship is over? Um, and so I use this phrase several times in this poem, After. After six years of pretending, we'd emptied that house we called home of our cobwebs, smells, and shadows. We bleached it clean, boxed our relics into separate trucks, destined for separate places, and I felt the long, low echo of the love, the hate. We pounded into the walls together, but saw no sign left of ever having been us. Struggling out into July with the last crate, arms filled with failures I could not throw away, I felt you embrace my shoulders, whispering into my hair, to keep the damn ring, because it was the only beautiful thing you ever gave me. Believing you is always too easy. After two years, time is kind, simmering old aches, cooking them down to hide within the red soup of our hearts. After dinner and too many bottles of wine, you nod as I ramble about unfinished poems the men I banish when ideas of marriage eventually rise. You smile, a sliver of this knowledge wedged in your lip. After I shut that door behind you, remembering the boy I loved, I finger the ring in my pocket, and my heart rolls over with a stiff, sore cry, realizing, you lied, baby, you lied. These two don't really seem to go together, do they? Right? The title and the images. Uh, amputation sounds really violent, um, but for some people, getting a haircut can be a very traumatic issue. Uh, but it can also be somewhat liberating. And, and this is a poem about that. So this is what comes after, after. Amputation. 
When I marched into the salon, searching for a new do to attract another man, blue-haired hens perched under beehive domes eyed me hard as I was tucked into a plastic bib and drenched with water. These ladies flipped through Cosmo's waxy pages, glossy with photos of pouty waifs, limbs wrapped around bottles of Calvin Klein's eternity. Cut it all off. I managed, staring at the drippy mouse in the mirror. Bev hovered my head like Michelangelo surveying a lumpy slab of stone. When a drawing diva, lips fire hydrant red bleated, If you ask me, I wouldn't touch it. Let it swing past your ass into piles at your feet. Cut it, be crying like a baby. All that lumped off like it was trash. She climbed back into her magazine. Thin hair licked around pink curlers, bony fingers rustling like leaves over airbrushed pictures of younger women. I looked at my reflection, eyes puffy from tears shed over a man who ran calloused fingers through my locks, buried his head in my hair when we curled up for bed. Clasping Bev's scissored fingers in a gentle fist, I said, just a trim this time around. Enough to clip off all the dead ends. This next poem's called Winter Again, using the seasons as a metaphor to try and heal one's heart. I think of you in seasons and degrees, balmy, brisk, or iceberg cold. Now I know I could have reduced myself to embers just as easily as I froze beneath your stare. But with a roar as loud as lightning is bright, you flashed me out of your life. No room in your sky for stormy weather like mine. Every time it snows, I ache for flakes to melt into my tongue, taste your heart in my mouth. of a dark poem, just to uh, warn you. Old Habits. Nightly, she wished for this death. Imagined laying down to sleep, his singing fists silenced, the calloused groping chain still. For 25 years, she hunched her life around fears of the roar downstairs, bore bruises beneath her skirt, twitched with the loneliness he beat into her. And now his funeral flowers perfume the front hall, and her hand is slicked of the wedding band. But naked, she lays on her side, palms the dent his body contoured over the years, and imagines that cold meat starting to rot, infested with worms, maggots tunneling through his chest, finally finding a use for his heart. Ouch, yeah.
Um, this next poem is about nursing homes. Have you, always no have you ever noticed how nursing homes have this, these weird names like Heritage Ridge, Cotillion Lange, Elysian Fields, uh, things like that? Well, when I was uh, just a little girl, uh, my grandfather, who was very cantankerous and proud, um, almost set his apartment on fire. And he claimed that ghosts did it. So my aunts and uncles <laughs> decided it was time for him to go into assisted living or to be in a nursing home. And I remember going as a child to go to visit him and being scared of those people there. Um, until I started visiting my grandfather more often, and I realized that this man, who was my grandfather, who kind of, you know, had pop bottle glasses and just two strands of hair sticking out of his head and no teeth whatsoever to speak of, had a lot to teach me. And that in these homes, in these places, these older people, you know, sometimes it seems like they're being discarded when they are a great uh, source of history and information. These older people were once babies, once children, once young people. Um, they didn't just turn old overnight. So this is kind of a poem that talks about facing that fear and embracing it. Heritage Ridge. I check the time. Need bananas through the paper sack and try to ignore the smells. Navy beans and disinfectant dancing with circular fans. My eyes settle on the display cabinet lined with doilies, hen-shaped toaster cozies and yarn scarves, all pearled by Mabel, Stella, or Goldie. I close my eyes. It has been too long, I know, but this death farm looms in my dreams, peopled with yellowing ghosts who roll eyes and loll tongs between steel walkers and IV units. Until her stroke, five years ago, she made fry bread from scratch, farmed corn under moonlight as coyotes, coyotes howled in the hills. She changed the oil in her Buick and the diapers of our children. Her black braid keeping time between her cow-thick shoulders, she hummed old psalms over a sink, sweat running rivers into her penny-skin wrinkles. Her fleshy arms veined and muscled from lifting loads of laundry and kin, raising eight babies, burying three in the country alone. The clock chimes its time and into the activity room she rolls herself, hair still thick as my wrist, eyes spirit rich, and I know one day her life is mine to inherit. Um, this next poem, like many of my poems, are persona poems. And basically what that means is that I use a first-person I to create um, a voice in a poem, much the same way an author can create a fictional character that is also an I. That allows us poetic license to kind of try and explore other people's experiences, maybe through poetic empathy. But also it's a way often to give voice to experiences that are often silenced. This is one of those more positive experiences, and it's called First Child. 
As a kid, I drank strawberry knee-high, loaded myself up sticky with its syrup, and in the porch swing, rolling heels against cool concrete, felt my belly slurp and gurgle, sloshing in watery tempo. Mother warned I would bloat into a fat seated bulb, ready to gush and split open. I loved the idea of growing red and round, a bright shape, easily rolled between fingers and plunged into a watering mouth. In the dark, love, you hover over me, slip ripe fruit between my lips, and stroke my swelling stomach, pulsing with a fresh rhythm, bright as a promise, sweet as a new memory. So we have a couple more minutes, so I'll, I'll read just a couple more poems, and then if you guys have any questions, comments, or criticisms, uh, we'll open the floor to that. Um, this last one I, I hadn't really planned to read, but um, it's based on a poem by Adrian Rich, uh, one of the people that I, one of the poets that I really look up to. Um, it's from 21 Love Songs, and the title of this poem is "What Kind of Beast Would Turn Its Life into Words." This is entitled Confession. Sweaty palmed, I enter, ready to hold an honest to God sit down with the robed conduit to the landlord upstairs. After the purgation of damning evidence, I leave the creaky confessional, spiritually cleansed, ready to rub fingerprints off onto rosary beads. This admission of guilt. This vocalized trembling at having failed some cosmic quiz is, in effect, an act of dumping manure onto a lawn, which chokes down the shit and blossoms. This next poem will be the last one, and it's called "Searching." Um, when I was a grad student, I um, worked for a time in Champaign, Illinois, and at that time there was a young girl named Victoria who had gone missing. She was only three years old, and I remember taking lunch breaks downtown Champaign and seeing posters, um, you know, stapled to telephone poles, and inside the, you know, the bagel shops and bars and things like that. You could see her face everywhere. Every time you get on an elevator, the doors would close, and you would see her face looking back at you. Only three. And so, not being a mother myself, I, I I just tried to imagine what that must feel like, um, looking for her, searching for her, seeing and hearing her everywhere. And this is the poem that I tried to create. Searching. Even now, the mother still searches after years of turning dumpsters, combing Illinois thick with cornfields. Peers over her shoulder to scan stretches of playgrounds and ditches, strains at stoplights into idled cars. This afternoon, in Walmart's parking lot, a child's brilliant wail sends her heart into frenzy, and when she calls out the name Victoria, there is no answer, only stares from strangers and an oily, sharp echo grinding its honed edge into her head, carving around memories of her daughter. Tonight, 
The once bright cries are silence, and the mother curls fetal in the dark, sweating against the tub, her fingernails gouging a tattered doll head, feeling with one hand for the switch to flick on the light she knows is there. Okay. Okay. So thank you, everyone. Any any questions or anything that you would you would all like to talk about? Yes. Um, a lot of your poems, I just even when they're about love or not about love, they kind of you know, the way you uh, describe them and use the prose, you kind of have a sort of a erotic feel to it. Do you do that on purpose to create a seductive manner to it, or is it just something that's a part of your writing? I, I think it's something that's a part of my writing. I don't consciously do it, um, and sometimes you know. Um, I think that what, yeah, could, um, he said that uh, many of my poems um, seem to have a, oh, what was the word that you used, erotic? Uh, erotic quality to them, and if it was something that I intended, or if it was something that was just a part of, of my work. And I think it's something that just naturally occurs. I don't intentionally do it. Um, but oftentimes when a poet's creating work, they don't, what they don't intend becomes the outcome. So, yeah, but good question. Good question. Any others? Sometimes if I wait. Troy, go ahead. Yeah, that's a that's a really good question too. Um, sound is something that I'm very conscious of the musicality of a line, or the I don't try and to to make my lines rhyme or to break in that way. I try and let that happen naturally or organically, however the case may be. Um, but I think that poems are always meant to be heard. They're always meant to be read. And so I, I struggle with those people who say, you know, I write poetry, but I don't share it with anyone. I, okay, that's fine, but. Um, you know, you, it's, it's kind of being selfish because what you have to say about your experiences could connect with someone else so that they have that aha moment. You know, I didn't think anyone else felt like that. And you make a connection whether you know it or not. Yeah. Good. Yes, Krista. It, de it depends. Um, the, the process that I go through is usually there's some kind of, something inspires me, whether it's like a recipe box or if it's an HBO documentary or a headline that I see in the paper or, you know, you know, a poster of a missing child that gets me thinking. And then I usually, I never use the computer to compose. That, that just does not seem natural to me. I use long um, sheets of legal paper and I, I rewrite and rewrite by hand over and over again until I'm ready to take it to the screen and then I play with line breaks and things like that. So it develops from an inspiration but then it develops you know, into the length slowly and sometimes over the course of many years. Yeah, yeah good question. Oh, Val and then here we go. Yes. <laughs> right. 
Yeah, how do I try and authentically relate that experience when I myself? Um, a lot of it has to do with careful observation, listening to people, listening to what they sound like and what they say, um, doing research with typhoid Mary and cicada too, by the way. I didn't know anything about cicadas until I started researching about them and found their life cycle so interesting and maddeningly sad. Um, and so that informs some of it to maybe helpfully make it more believable or relatable. Yeah, great question. Yes? Yeah, so, so when it depends on where I am. I mean, sometimes if it's on my way to work, um, I'll think about it and it'll be right there in a component and then I'll wait till I'm able to get somewhere and write it down. Sometimes, I mean, one of the most inspirational times for me is right before bed, right before I'm slipping off to sleep, you know, and I'm thinking of these things. That's why I always keep a tablet right next to me so I can jot down these ideas. In fact, I have a journal with starts, you know, ideas for maybe what I want to do later. So I try and make sure I always carry something with me, and if not, then I just hold it there. Did, did that answer your question? That is a good one. It's a really good one. I saw another hand. Yes. Sure. Oh, you mean like some of the poems don't seem to have a definite ending? Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I guess I'd never really noticed that, but perhaps it is so that it remains, it kind of resonates for a while so that you do think about it. Perhaps, I, I don't do it intentionally, but perhaps it's just, again, something I don't intend, but something that, that results. Yeah, that's a good question. I'll have to think about that more. Yeah, you had another one? Um... Well, uh, the, the first poem that I read called The Digging was published in the Rosebud, and actually our library has a subscription to that publication. I believe it's, I believe it's published four times a year. I think it's a quarterly. Um, another that we may have a subscription to is the Spoon River Anthology. Um, I've also been published in the Karamu um, and the Agora. Uh, which are publications that come from EIU. And so when I have the time, I still try and send out and submit, and I proudly get those rejection letters back. <laughs> you know, they push me, and, um, and it's okay. It's okay. You, to be a writer, to be a poet, you have to grow a thick skin because, um, yeah, not everyone's going to like everything that you do, and you don't want to change your voice to fit what somebody else wants. That's just, you, you don't want to compromise your voice as a writer. Yeah, that would be my advice. Anyway, not that you asked for it, but yeah. I'm sorry, what? No, it hasn't been published yet. Yet. I sound hopeful, don't I? But yeah, I'm trying. I'm trying. Yes? So as a writer, what do you find is like the best way to get Yeah, I think schools. Um, I would highly recommend. Um, there, are, there's a couple of publications called the Writers Market and the Poets Market, and I believe we have these in our reference center. They're updated every year, and they're comprehensive listings of different publications. There are so many out there, and you know, a lot of them don't pay anything. They just pay in copies of work, but some of them do. And I, I would recommend looking into that. There are a lot of online journals as well. Um, it seems that seems to be the trend where people are. Submitting online, and of course, it's access.
access to a wider audience, right? Um, so I would recommend researching those things. Oftentimes, you can, if you look up the, the writer's market or the poet's market, they have publications that seem like they're made just for you. Maybe they're in Illinois-based. Maybe they, you know, want submissions of formal poetry or poetry about science fiction uh, or feminist poetry. I mean, th they're out there. And it just is a matter of taking the time to look for it, putting your work together, getting a great cover letter, and sending it, and then waiting, and then waiting. Yeah, good question. Any other? Oh, yeah, Eric. Yes. Um, a, a lot. Uh, it, it's hard to narrow them down. Adrian Rich definitely is um, a poet that inspires me. Sharon Olds is another one. Um, I would say Emily Dickinson definitely. Uh, um, Anne Sexton, even though my poems aren't necessarily confessional, um, Anne Sexton and Sylvia Plath, they broke ground for women in being able to talk about subjects that were otherwise taboo. You know, like not everyone wants to be a mother. That's a shocker that came out in the 50s and 60s. Um, so they inspire me with their groundbreaking, you know, and their fearlessness. Um, I would say also right now Billy Collins the humor he's able to infuse in his poetry, but still remain awe-inspiring and just kind of drawing your attention to little things. So, so uh, just a few. I could name more, but yeah. Good. Any others? Yes. As if, well, yeah, I would. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah, I would. I'm not afraid of that term at all. Yeah, I embrace it. Good question. Any others? These have all been good. And you, know, and you guys have been so patient. I know that it's not easy to sit in one place and listen to someone drone on about their work. So uh, I appreciate your attentiveness. And um, thank you for coming. Read poetry. Yeah. Thanks for listening to this Moraine Valley Community College Library event podcast. For more information, visit www.morainevalley.edu slash library.